Welcome back to another exciting episode of Move the Needle Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jason Zook. Greg Hartle's on the other microphone. Greg, how you doing? Hey, Jason. How are you? I'm doing great. I uh, we, we were just talking before we started recording, and we were kind of both geeking out over the uh, new Top Gun movie that's coming out, which it's been... I think I think I saw what is it thirty years since the other one like something crazy like that. Yeah, I love how I asked you how are you, and we had just been talking for like twenty five <laughs> minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what you got to do for the people, right? Like yeah, the people exactly. need to know. Like Greg didn't ask Jason how he was doing. I'm unsubscribing from this podcast. <laughs> um, so Top Gun's exciting. It's fine. Yes, but there's a more interesting one that you brought up, which was the new Terminator movie yes. that is coming out. So I, for some reason, a couple of weeks ago. I maybe it was when the the trailer came out or the teaser or whatever. I was like, oh man, I don't remember the um, oh, what's his name, the guy who played Batman and was in a Terminator movie. Um, I don't. What know. is his name? Christian Bale. Oh, oh my okay. gosh, I don't remember the Christian Bale Terminator movie. Like I just completely forgot about it. And so there's a Christian Bale Terminator movie. That's why I didn't know yes. what you were talking about. Yes. So. I, you should definitely watch it. Everyone listen to this. If you like the Terminator movies, you should go and watch it. It does. It's a little bit like the storyline is kind of weird and wonky. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, this is fine. So then I was like, oh, wait, yeah, there was the other one that came out after that with Daenerys Targaryen from Game of Thrones, um, who has a real name, but I'm sorry, I don't recall it right now. Um, so that was the one that came out afterward. And so there's the those two Terminator movies that came out after T1, T2, T3. And they're just, they feel so different from the other three. And I was like, why do these feel so different? And so I actually went down the rabbit hole. Here's what happened. So James Cameron was a part of the first, second, and third. And then someone bought the rights to the franchise oh. for 20 years. Oh. So for the next 20 years, James Cameron was not a part of the series. And that ran out in 2019 when they are now filming and doing the new one, which has James Cameron attached, which is why everyone I think is so excited about it and why the trailer actually looks really interesting. And I, I'll, I'll be honest, like the one with Christian Bale wasn't bad. The one with, uh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting her name. It wasn't terrible either. Like it was still entertaining, but I just think there was like an inconsistency in the storyline. Like it just didn't feel like I was like gripped into it. Like I was the first three movies. So I'm actually very excited for the new one because James Cameron is back a part of the franchise. So that's your super nerdy in-depth update on on Terminator movies. I'm so far behind the times. First of all, you're a movie buff, Mm -hmm. unlike me. Like, I love movies. I just don't watch them. Yeah. So that's a problem. And I I love movies and I watch them. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so um, I, for instance, had no idea there were more Terminators after Terminator 2 until you just told me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you've got three to watch until the- I'm I'm way behind. Yeah, Yeah. I'm way behind. Also- Amelia Clark is her name. I needed to look it up because I felt terrible that I didn't know her name and, and it's that's not a fun thing to do. So Amelia Clark, she was actually really great. I, I really I think I liked the the most recent one out of the those two, and even maybe out of T3. I think I like the most recent one. Anywho, uh Yeah, I'm was, excited about that. I'm excited about Top Gun. I had a, yes. a friend out at my place all week this week, and we were talking about the difference between a film and a movie. And then we Mm. were talking about the difference between a classic movie and a movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we, you know, we were like ranking movies and so forth. And then we somehow arrived at Top Gun because of the new trailer. You know, he's like, did you see the new trailer? 
And I was like, heck yeah, I did. So we, uh, we had a bro out moment and, uh, (laughs) watched the original Top Gun over the weekend. Well, and what's also fun about that is where we lived two places prior to where we live now, you came and visited and we went for a walk down by the water. And this is in Oceanside, California and the Top Gun house, like the original house that was in that movie is in Oceanside. That's actually where it has lived. And they have since moved it two blocks because it's oh. like a historical thing. They moved to two blocks because a giant hotel chain bought that piece of land to put a nice hotel, oceanfront <laughs> hotel, which is hilarious. Yeah, um, the real estate in that movie is fantastic. Oh, yeah, it's note. really, yeah, it's really good. It's There's really a good. lot of other things that are great too. Yeah. I mean, it's a terrible movie, but I mean, it's great. Yeah, oh yeah, it's it's one of those. It's a classic. It's yeah. the, that type of classic. Yeah, it's a for classic sure. movie. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's uh, let's jump into some updates here. So I know you have a couple things to update us on. Yeah. Um, so maybe I think the thing we've been talking about a lot in the past couple episodes is Youngblood Coffee. So give us a quick recap of, of that and then where things stand. Yeah. So, you know, we have one coffee shop of our own. Um, our main focus over the last, say, six, eight months has been roasting our own beans, roasting and packaging our own beans and selling those beans wholesale to other coffee shops and restaurants. However, we have wanted to branch out and open up another coffee shop, but you know, our original one is in Fargo, North Dakota. So small town, you know, not a lot of people would know about it. Not a lot of people would go there, et cetera. Um, And we've been considering, you know, where we could possibly open up another location, particularly in the Midwest. Um, You know, we would like to say somewhat close to our original location and just kind of build out from there. Uh, the coasts obviously are are dominated by lots of different coffees, so Midwest seems like a good place for us to be. We've considered Chicago, we've considered Minneapolis, you know, cities like that. Well, Opportunity opened up in Minneapolis in an up-and-coming town that hasn't been gentrified yet, um, which really fits our vibe and, and our brand. Um, and... Uh, a coffee shop opened, guy went out of business just literally a few months after he opened, unfortunately. Now he's got a two and a half year lease that he's got to figure out how to get himself out of. Now he's got all this coffee equipment uh, that he owes money on, um, et cetera. So we approached him with the idea that perhaps we would take over that space. Perhaps we would buy some, if not all of that equipment from him, and then we would rebrand the spot you know, as our second location for Youngblood. Well, we originally were looking at the possibility of a loan, bank loan, to do this transaction, plus having one investor invest money as well. Uh, But then we kind of brainstormed about it and came up with the concept that perhaps what we could do, um, which I do in a lot, I did a lot when I was doing private equity, is have the business owner essentially finance uh, the transaction at least as much as possible. So we do have the owner of this place, uh, former owner of this place, um, uh, as a, a written letter of intent to, uh, he has agreed to essentially finance us purchasing the equipment from him. Um, and we will make payments to him over the course of three years. So that helps him get out of a jam Um, he doesn't get it all up front like he would hope, you know, and want, but it does help him get out of a jam. 
And it helps us delay the outlay of cash. So now we don't have to get a bank loan to make all that happen. You know, uh, it just puts us in a much better position, uh, definitely short term, especially. We still need some operating capital uh, that we don't want to take away from our other location or from our reserves or from our efforts to build our roasting business, our wholesale business. So we would still need roughly $100,000 in operating capital. Um, we had a potential investor that we were originally thinking about that is a local business owner in Fargo. But in investigating that situation, um, two things. One, he's not an accredited investor, and I am somewhat uh, – I, I am very cautious about anyone who's not an accredited investor investing in anything I'm doing. And two, uh, the vibe just didn't quite fit. You know, the way it works with Tim and Alicia, who are the primary owners of Youngblood, and then myself as more of a silent partner, is I leave them alone, <laughs> you know, unless, unless they ha need help, unless it's something regarding money, or change of ownership, essentially I let them make the decisions. I offer my opinions, you know, like, oh yeah, that looks cool. Or yeah, that would be really fun or, you know, things of that nature. But I don't tell them what to do. I let them build the vibe they want to build. And in some cases it would, it's totally different than my own taste or what I would personally want to do. But I get it. Like I see their vision. I see why they care about it. And, um, you know, with this investor, we had things like um, this investor's like, oh, well, there's another neighborhood in Minneapolis that is, you know, uh, would be a much better neighborhood. And he's right. Like the economics would be better, but the vibe would be totally different. Mm -hmm. You know, Tim and Alicia are kind of weird people. They're, you know, all tatted up. They play records, you know, um, the whole time in the coffee shop, they, you know, every barista we hire has kind of an, their own individual personality, like some are band members and some are different artists, uh, you know, and so forth. So like, we don't want the, you know, caribou, Starbucks, you name it type of vibe. And this, this investor kind of fits more of that vibe because he's looking at spreadsheets and not the coolness factor. Um, so we, we decided to bail on that. We have another investor who is an accredited investor um, who we're exploring and doing the same kind of vetting. And, you know, he's obviously doing the same kind of vetting of us to see about the possibility of him putting in a hundred thousand. What's really interesting about that is um, I put in 20,000 for 16% ownership. This gentleman will put in a hundred thousand for 15% ownership. So well, your stock has gone up. Yeah. So on paper, my investment philosophy and strategy worked perfectly. Mm -hmm. Right. Because what I always want is I want to make my money back in 36 months or less. And then everything else from there is upside. And I've done that and some. If I were to take, you know, the cash out now that's on paper and that's very important to <laughs> acknowledge, like the money is not in my bank account. But what I've suggested is, is if we're going to bring in another investor, I am, um, my, um, capitulation is I will drop my ownership percentage by 1%. So I will drop down to 15%. 
Uh, however, I want my original capital back at the time of transaction. That way I get my original 20,000 out. Um, you know, then I have essentially 80,000 in equity in and it's all upside. So that's where we're at with that. We haven't, you know, we haven't finalized anything and this still, again, might not go through, um, but we are in the process of kind of working through this setup as opposed to the uh, bank setup that we were originally looking at. Uh, as usual, have a couple questions. Sure. And I think that's kind of just, you know, kind of the thing that we do here. Um, the financing part for the current owner of the space and equipment is kind of interesting because it does take a lot of the risk financial risk away from you guys right of having to put up so much money up front mm-hmm. um, so I'm guessing does that mean the lease with of the place stays with him or do you guys take over the lease how does that part of it work because the equipment totally makes sense because he owns the equipment but yeah so the transaction with him is about equipment um, we we would take over we would sign a new lease essentially with the building owner. Got it. Okay. So that would be, you know, kind of like a, a loan on the equipment, if you will, and you know, yep. just paying that for as long as that takes. And then the, the, that's kind of interesting with the first investor that you had of, I, I don't think a lot of people, when you think about the opportunity of getting an investor, think about like the vibe of an investor, right? right. It's like, Oh, well, who, you know, who cares? Like it's money. Like we just need money and we want to grow and whatever. But I think that that's such an important part of it. Cause the last thing that you want is someone who has a completely different vision, who's now meddling yep. in, in decisions and things. And that's where you, that's exactly it. Yeah. I think that's where you tend to like, that's where you start with this is like, I'm not going to meddle. I'm just going to be here. I'm going to answer questions. I have this expertise. I bring this to the table, but like what machines you buy, how you decorate the store, how you operate it, what records you play. Like, I'm not going to make any of those decisions. And if you were to bring someone on who's even going to potentially discuss those decisions, that probably creates a negative ripple effect that, you know, could ultimately take the business down in in a weird way to say it as like as good as the money would be, the vibe and like the incongruency can can kind of be trouble. So my question there is, how hard is it to say no to money or have you just been in this long enough where you just always know there's always going to be money, you know, and another person or another investor? Well, yeah. So for me personally, there's always going to be money. There's, there's no shortage. I mean, there's trillions of dollars changing hands every single day in the United States of America. All you got to do is just figure out how to get your hand in the pile, you know? So that is never a factor to me. It goes back to what I think we were talking about when I was a day trader, how, Every day, the stock of the century is, you know, is available to buy, you know, it's like, oh, this is this, you'll never have this opportunity again, you know, and then, you know, of course, the next opportunity shows up the next day, right? And that's how I feel about uh, raising capital for a business venture. If it's a good idea and the economics work, money is there every time. There is no shortage of that. So I'm not at all worried about can we get the money? In fact, it's actually like, a sign, right? If you're not getting a lot of people that have interest or you you can't uh, explain your idea to somebody and they're like, yeah, I'm all in. Mm-hmm. That's a sign that you've got a problem, not them. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's, that's one thing. Uh, the second thing is, is like, it's real easy for Tim and Alicia too, because you know, they would rather, they're super smart people and they could do this like any, um, you know, normal startup type business raising capital, right? They're, they're, 
they're savvy enough and and smart enough to do it that way. They don't want to do it that way. So they would rather just stab their eyes out with an ice pick <laughs> than have an investor on the team who's like, well, you know, if uh, yeah. if we just used uh, paper cups instead of these kind of cups, we could get an extra two cents per cup. Yeah, uh, you you know that kind of BS type stuff. So so for them, even more so than me, the vibe really has to fit, uh, and and that's I think what's made our relationship so strong is even in situations in which they think differently than I I do or their style is different. I like them. Like I like, I like fun people. Yeah. Like I want to be around people that are like doing weird shit. And so yeah. for me, it really works for the average quote unquote investor. They're looking for returns on their money. And if they have money to invest, they've probably done it in very traditional ways, you know? So, so it is a little harder to find if it's going to be a partner in the deal, it's a little bit harder to find people who who kind of can allow Tim and Alicia to be un you know not traditional and 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 kind of do their own thing, um and and make their own vibe. Yeah. Uh, okay. So last question on this update is: How did you come up with the valuation of the investor new potential new investors fifteen percent being worth five x what you invested for the same amount of stock? And I know that this could kind of be a long answer, but I'm curious if there's a simple way you can explain it. Yeah, well, the simple way for me to explain it is the bank. Okay. So because we went to the bank first and we gave them all of our financials and so forth, they valued it for us. Gotcha. Which is a pretty safe bet, right? Because they're not going to overvalue it for sure. They're going to be conservative. Yeah, they're going to be super conservative and they're going to try to kind of eke every penny they can out of it, which means they have to kind of give you conservative numbers on your end, right? So, so you know, we just gave everything to the bank and we said, you know, this is what we're looking to raise. Can you tell us, you know, what the debt to income ratio needs to be, what the debt to valuation ratio needs to be, et cetera. So the bank kind of did the hard work for us, cool, which was nice, you know, yeah. and, and they came back and valued the business and said, you know, this is your percentage of ownership. This is your percentage of ownership. Here's, here's what we believe it's worth and so forth. Um, so that was great. That And, and it was kind of a, a third-party validation um, as well for anyone else that gets into the deal, right? So we can say, this isn't us just making up a number here. This is what the bank believes our business is worth. Yeah. And so now when we go to investors, we can, we can paint that picture for them. And it's not just, you know, a couple of dudes just like, yeah, our business is worth $10 million. <laughs> like you and I have joked around about yeah, in the past, yeah. you know, like our business is worth 10 million, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like the valuation porn of the Silicon yeah. Valley world. Right, just right. like a bunch of guys sitting around a table going like, what do you think? 2 million? Nah, man, 5 million. <laughs> nah, I think 10 million. Like we've got yeah. some really interesting stuff going on. And that's yeah. when you explain it to me that that is legitimately in a very simplified yeah. version, how valuations happen. It blew my mind. How they start for sure. For, yeah. for, for companies that don't have revenue and so forth. That's exactly how that works. Basically, it's hilarious. It's unbelievable. Yeah. 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 All right, cool. So what's the timeline on deciding on that investor coming on moving forward? What does that look like? Uh, no specific timeline. Um, the the gentleman who we think is a, a high likelihood to be the investor, if we go this route, um, is looking over stuff. And we, we just said, you know, give us, give us a heads up here in a couple of weeks. So, I mean, kind of like that timeline, but no Okay. No set dates. 
All right. Well, keep us posted, me and the listeners. Um, cool. Uh, I'll jump in here on, I want to talk about, uh, I guess I want to talk about comparison traps first and then um, I can talk about my second thing after you give us an update on something else as well. So I, I, I consider myself to be someone who doesn't tend to compare themselves a lot to other people and that probably, you know, you would understand and appreciate that about me. People who listen to this, who know me are like, yeah, I don't see Jason as someone who like copies other people or does other things like, you know, other people do, but it's a natural thing that we all do. We compare ourselves to other people. We look at how other people make things. We look at what other people are doing and it's a, like a human instinct to go, oh, well, could I do that? Or why am I not doing that? Or, oh man, like that person's so doing so much better than I am and, and what have you. And I found myself, this is related to the other thing I'll talk about in a bit, but I found myself really getting into some, not negative mental patterns, but just mental kind of roadblocks almost with comparing our, specifically our YouTube content to other people who are making YouTube content. Mm -hmm. And not even in, in like a numbers game specifically of like, oh, I, you know, we should have so many subscribers and so many views for video. Like that stuff, I think there's a lot of things that are out of your control with those things. But more so just on the, I know I could be making similar content to people that I look up to that make really great content all the time. But having this kind of almost mental battle of, I don't know like what it is. Either I don't want to spend the time doing it, like it just doesn't excite me enough, or... I know that the like actual work that it takes to create that type of content is not the work that I want to put in, but I'm still fighting the mental battles. You know, like even if I tell myself, oh yeah, like Jason, you know how long it takes to record all of the clips to make a video that looks like this, or you know, you know how much it interrupts your life if you wanted to film like a day in the lifestyle video and not even every day, but just every once in a while. And it's because I've done a lot of that stuff before. So I very much firsthand knowledge and experience of what that is like, not to mention just the back end of that, which is like all the editing time of videos and all this stuff. So not to get too deep into the weeds with, uh, you know, videos and editing and all that stuff specifically, but more just on this idea of comparison traps. And, and I actually wonder if you ever fall into any of this stuff either and, and how you deal with it. And for me, I'll just say that kind of what I'm what I've done is I talked it through with Caroline. We we actually recorded a video. It's on the Wandering Aimfully channel about our YouTube strategy and less of, oh, we have a specific outcome at the end of that video to share. And it was more of here's us talking this through and trying to figure it out. And kind of what I came up with was I need to just a draw the line in the sand and say, this is what I'm willing to commit to. This is what I'm willing to do as far as our like YouTube video content and be okay with that. And then B then establish some rules for myself that's almost like a contract that I, I write with myself where I, I won't break those rules because otherwise that will get me right back to where I was comparing myself, worrying, et cetera. And, and I think those two things, it's like, it's really been a like a 180 for me. Like I've gone from feeling like, oh, I don't know what we're doing with this to like, no, I actually kind of feel empowered. And I feel like I have some ownership of this now and I'm not interested in comparing myself. I'm now interested in trying to figure out based on these rules, like what we're going to do and how we're going to kind of make this happen. So yeah, that's what I've been thinking about. So I have a couple of questions about that to kind of understand better. Um, sure. Do you, do you have uh, outcomes you're trying to get from your YouTube channel? Like, do you say to yourself, these are the 
these are the key performance indicators as just using a simple term, right? So are these, these are the key performance indicators that tell us it's worth us utilizing this marketing channel. Um, and, and are you tracking those specifically? So for example, let's go back to the surgeon example or a physician's office. If we were to say, you know, let's put an ad in this magazine and have people call us. We track how many people call us at that number and how many of those are qualified buyers, you know, and how many of those come in for a consultation. Is that how you're utilizing YouTube? So, yeah, it it is definitely um, what I see as the lowest hanging fruit of marketing for us. So it's, it's a channel where, you can get you can get a lot of organic reach without having to do a lot of work or having to pay a lot of money, which is important. Um, and B, to answer your question specifically, we tracked over time, uh, kind of in the first six months of selling Wandering Aimfully memberships, we had a survey that people would fill out afterwards. Um, so how did they hear about us? Where did they find us? And it was about I think 15 to 20% is the realistic number. I'd like it to say it was higher, but I don't have the data in front of me. So let's just call it 20%. 20% of people who signed up found us through YouTube. Wow. And, and so that to me is, number one, it's working even with the very, very, very small numbers and reach that we have there. And those people were finding us on YouTube. They Because we asked questions before that of like, are you on our email list? Had you heard of us before? And a lot of people's first point of contact of us was on YouTube. Wow. And the second part of it that was interesting was the follow-up on that is people said that they would go and binge like 10 videos and really get a feel for who we were. So that goes back to your vibe conversation with the Youngblood folks, right? And sure. they got a really good vibe from us that they didn't get from other people through our video content because you can see I could see that yeah yeah that exactly happening. and you can you can hear and you can feel and, and the emotions and all that stuff right you can't get that through really any other medium and and so that that is why for me I I want to invest more in YouTube and try and figure out what our thing is with YouTube okay so then going back to the comparison side of things so are you comparing I'm trying to figure out what you're comparing so are yeah. you saying are you saying to yourself, we only get 20% of our subscribers from YouTube or we're in comparison to so-and-so who gets 50%. Like that would be a type of comparison that I would tend to want to make. Or are you saying, or are you worried about the aesthetics? Aesthetics. Okay. Totally. So why? Um, I, th- I think this is the specific answer. I know that I can film much better videos than we do because I have an eye for composition. I understand how cameras work. I, you know, have some uh, knowledge of storytelling and visual storytelling. But the problem is that I don't have the time to devote to filming for, you know, like your whole day, two days. Yeah. Like all this stuff, all the editing that goes in. So like, uh, here's a really concrete example. My good buddy, Matt Diavella has a YouTube channel that has just exploded and he's amazing. Like I could, I can say that I can't make videos like Matt can. However, I do think I could make videos of like 75 to 80% of the quality and storytelling that he does. Mm -hmm. I just know that for the amount of time and effort that goes into that, I don't see enough of a a key performance indicator on the return to invest that amount of time going forward. So So why does that bother you? Because I know I can do it. 
Mm. And the fact that I'm not doing it kind of frustrates me. Okay, so this is more about your commitment to the quality of your work and putting your name on it. Yep. Gotcha. I don't know. You know, it's a fascinating thing because I've never really had that problem. <laughs> and maybe it's just that I'm not very good at anything. I don't really, I don't know. I don't well, know. Well, I think it, but I, I do I, think it, it's like when you create a lot of content and I think yeah. that's where you and I, you know, are very different. Right. And, and so I just, I was even thinking about it, you know, this, these past like week or two of like, man, we really do create a lot of stuff. Like, I know that that's yeah, probably a, just a no brainer for anybody who knows us. And, but for me, I just kind of had this realization of like, we're creating all of this stuff and it still feels like a little bit of an uphill battle to grow our, our wandering aimfully business. And that's where you start to get into the thing of like, okay, is it the positioning of the thing? Is it the thing itself? Is it the experience yeah, of the right. thing? It, you know, is it all these different things? Or is it just that we don't have enough people who are seeing it that are new, essentially? Like we, we've already exhausted the audience that we have on right, if they're going right. to buy or not. Well, so so the way I look, is, it's so fascinating because, <laughs> you know, I, I don't create a lot of content, as you know. Um, uh, but there's I wish you would, though. Yeah, I know. There's plenty yeah. of other areas of my life, though, that I strive to do really well in. Um, mostly personal things, though. You know, like I want my car to be clean yep. all the time, you know, and I will spend the extra time to make it clean, blah, 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 right? But but, uh, and I will be, you know, I will learn a, a sport or a hobby and I will want to master that hobby, um, you know, whatever it might be. But what's fascinating to me is like the comparison game for me from a business perspective, I would have, you know, I would look at as, a, as using your YouTube situation, I would look at my YouTube situation and only be concerned about things like, I know that the industry standard is X and I'm falling short of that industry standard in terms of my conversion, right? So that would bother me a lot. That's the kind of comparison I would make. Mm -hmm. Or I would say, um, I've done this exact same thing in another business and that YouTube channel, you know, converts at why mm -hmm. this one doesn't. And I would compare it that way. I've never really considered a comparison to other businesses that is, that, that doesn't demonstrate to me that I'm, that I am clear cut not reaching my potential mm -hmm. in the creative way that, that you're assessing that. And I just, outside of your own personal value system, I don't know why it matters. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of why it's been bothering me and why I've yeah, like just explored it. Cause it's, it really never, maybe it has always bothered me under the surface, but it's never been enough, you know, like it's never bothered me enough to, to think about it. Like, it's just one of those things like, Oh yeah, I thought about this, but like, doesn't matter. But yeah, it just, I don't know. It, it had been driving me nuts these past couple weeks or months or however long right. that it's been bubbling up. And, uh, but yeah, I do feel like, like I said, I do feel empowered now. And that really was just about like drawing a line right. in the sand, establishing these rules and knowing that like, 
I'm not going to create like my buddy Matt because that's his full-time job. It's not my full-time job to make YouTube yeah. videos. Like I have right. a software company that I run and I have a membership community that I take care of and all these other things that we're doing. And so I just don't, I don't have the time. Like it just is not a realistic thing. But it, Well, it, and also quality is not your issue. Like of all the things to focus on, you guys are nailing that part. But again, like it's so subjective because- But it's not subjective. It's not subjective. Hold on. Okay. Because I, I think that like, I, I would like to know who is the person who said to themselves, you know, this Jason and Caroline, the quality of this YouTube video just doesn't quite meet my standards. I'm not going <laughs> to sign up for this thing. Who's the person who said that? And I don't have, that's the only, yeah. that's the only way this matters, yeah. right? Is like. I don't, I can't imagine there's somebody, I mean, that's a real asshole sitting at home going, you know, you know, they, they got some great stuff in here, yeah. but you know, like I saw some lighting shots there, you, you know, Could you like, imagine? The, there's a couple of tweaks to the sound, a little pitchy, man, yeah, a little, little pitchy, a little pitchy, you know? Yeah. No. And you're right. Like, I mean, you, you are totally, doing that? no, and you are, you are totally right. No one is doing that, but I don't think it stops the mental cycles that sometimes of we course. get into, you know, and, and that's the thing where the, 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 the problem is staying in that place and, and not, not ever going, hold on a second. Is anyone saying this? No, no one's saying this. Is this just me, you know, comparing myself to something? And then like, what's the comparison? Like I said, like right. Matt has, he, this is all he does. Like I have all this other stuff. Like it's not a fair, it's apples to orangutans. Like it's not a fair comparison. So um, yeah, it, it's just, I don't know. I wanted to, but that is, but I'd like how you brought it up from the standpoint that that is what we all do. Totally. Right. That's and And it can kind of ruin our decision-making and also just get us down and, and ruin our productivity levels, you know, cause we start playing these games that are, that are subjective to us, but objective to the outside world. Like we can objectively pull up 10 YouTube videos or 10 YouTube channels and at least eight out of 10, the quality of your content and aesthetic is better than eight out of 10. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, to me, that's why I say it's not subjective. It's subjective. Like I can go to YouTube right now, pull up 10 random videos in your quote unquote industry and, and rank them in order of the quality. And that's objective, not subjective, yeah. right? And you're going to be better than eight out of 10, likely maybe even more than that, but at least eight out of 10 from everything I've seen. I mean, I've been watching a lot of ring dinger videos on, <laughs> <laughs> on YouTube. And let me tell you, the quality of that content is not even, uh, you know, uh, that's negative. That's so you know? good. So, so, so my point there only is that sometimes, you know, what we believe is subjective in a practical real world isn't actually subjective. Yeah, It's, you know, and objectively speaking, the quality of your material is on the higher end and that can't be argued. That's just a, va- a fact. Yeah. And so, you know, it's funny how we kind of turn that into something maybe that it's not exactly, but it is real. Like mm-hmm. we can, we can pretend like, Oh, we shouldn't do that. But <laughs> you know, we're human beings yeah, and, and we do. And sometimes so, you just get stuck in those spirals. Yeah, you yeah. absolutely do. So it's good that you, you know, you, you've kind of walked your way out of it. 
yep. and, and figured out what's the right fit for you. And it comes down to what you end up focusing on. Right. So, and that's why, it, that's why I think it's so interesting how, how differently you and I think about that stuff, because all I would do is go, well, tell me what the industry average is for YouTube videos. <laughs> right. And then, and then I would like rank myself compared to that. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't do it in a, um, in an emotional way, I would do it in a very practical way and say, well, I want, I want to succeed at this. Therefore, my videos need to be better than average, better than the industry average and preferably in the top 20%. So how do I get my videos into the top 20%? And then, then I would just stop there. Right. Yeah. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be like, well, I want it to be even better. I just wouldn't care yeah. at that point. Yeah. So that's, that's that update. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. The second part of this, I'll, I'll talk about, it. it'll be somewhat related, but I think it'll be a little bit different. So let's bounce back though. I know you have an update on your consulting stuff. Yeah. So, you know, you asked me a, a, an interesting question, uh, an epi- episode ago, or maybe two episodes ago where you said, um, you know, I said, I wa- really want to make this transition from one-on-one consulting to, uh, you know, one to many digital products online. Um, and, uh, I didn't have any one-on-one clients to work with. And you asked me, what's my runway to getting digital products up? Uh, you know, what's my timeline on that and the financial means that will cover that. And it got me thinking like, I, is there a way I can do this without having a runway? And so, um, I reached out to a software company who provides software to the healthcare industry. And in particular, this software company, I know where their shortcomings are because I've used the software as a user mm-hmm. on the other end, right? And as an administrator on the other end and helping other people adopt the software and use it in their offices. And so I've identified you know, what I would consider some pretty significant breakdowns um, in their, in their customer experience mm-hmm. and getting people to one, see the value in it two adopt it and three, make it a habit. And then four, find clear wins that say, this is really smart for us to be using this. And so I approached the CEO and CEO of this company and said, you know, I could do some consulting with you. I have everything you need. I've built software companies, so I get it from that angle. I've worked in startups and I've started up my own company, so I understand that angle. I know this healthcare industry inside and out. I know what the physicians want. I know what the staff of physicians want and need. Why don't I bridge that gap for you and help you design very specifically, so like not like ongoing work, but very specifically design a onboarding and training process and protocols, and then how to, you know, over the course of the first six months of using the software in a practice, how to help practices have the wins they need to have to say, wow, this is really awesome. Because when you, when you switch to a new software in an office, especially in like a healthcare office, it never goes well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always a disaster. I think you could say that about any software switch in any industry or any part of it, your life. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, like you're, it's, you're right. It's never smooth. It just never, it's never smooth. Uh, then people start complaining about it. 
then, you know, once staff turns on it, it's hard to get them to turn back and mm-hmm. say, no, 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 you know, this is really useful for you, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so I want to solve that very specific problem for them to help them create a customer experience, in particular an onboarding experience in the first few months where it's delightful, you know, and it, and it, and it works out really well. So I approached them about it and we had a couple conversations and back and forth. And it, and it looks like what I'll do is do some consulting with them to very, you know, there's a start and an end to a couple of projects we'll build together that will very specifically build this thing, but it's going to take me probably a good six months, maybe eight months to really do this, I imagine. And so um, that's my runway. So what I tried to do was, again, kind of going back to my philosophy that if I want to do one thing, then I need something else to pay for it and support it, right? So if I want to move to these digital products and I want to move to a lifestyle of more online rather than offline consulting, um, I need a way to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And so this, I think, is going to be that way. Interesting. In the process, it gives me a chance to practice what I want to build, right? So it gives me a chance essentially, like, so so some of the work I'm going to do with them is coursework, Mm. creating courses for staff in these clinics that they can go through and watch to onboard that software, right? So I'm going to learn kind of the backbone of how I want to structure the work I'm going to be doing anyway in a different you know, it'll be different courses, of course. Yeah. Not 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 what I'm gonna be doing ultimately, but but nonetheless the the backbone of it, right? The the structure, how I would structure it and so forth. So it actually gives me the practice I think I'm missing right now. You know, w- one thing one area that you and I probably differ in, you can tell me, but it seems that one area that we differ in is I start things in industries I don't know anything about, but the things I do are transferred from other things I've done. I'm not taking on a new job. And this is something you and I talked about, like with the practice management situation, mm-hmm. where, where I don't take on... So, so for me to be a course creator or an educator, basically, I've never been an educator. I don't know how to be an educator. And I want to learn that first before I'm selling my education courses. That's important to me um, with everything I do, right? Like I don't, I don't like taking things on. You know, people think I'm a huge risk taker, but actually, I, most of the st- stuff I do, I already have knowledge and understanding of. In some other capacity that I had a lot of support with first before I took it on myself, and I think one of the hangups for me of moving into this digital courses, digital products world is. I'm not necessarily on the side of eliminating um, gatekeepers. I see the value in it. I see why it's cool and it's a new era where we've essentially eliminated the gatekeepers. However, I do think it's completely eroded the quality of a lot of work we're putting out there in the world. And a lot of people are doing things they don't actually have an education in or understanding of. 
And I don't think that's necessarily good for society. And I'll give you one specific example of that, that I was just reading about this a few days ago that, that kind of fits my opinion of this, which is there was a health coach, quote unquote, who was, had a program online that you could pay for that uh, they would give you health advice, right? Like what to eat, how to exercise, et cetera. She, um, she started in California where there's no law or laws against her doing this without some sort of accredited certification. Then she moved to Florida where there are laws against offering what they consider health advice without some sort of accreditation and licensing. Uh, the state, uh, the Department of Health got tipped off to this, and the Department of Health uh, signed an agent to pretend to be a customer, signed up for this woman's course, took this woman's course, and then arrested her hmm. for illegally offering advice on a subject in which she did not have proper authority to offer advice on. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this coming where she has a coaching certificate from an unaccredited organization that teaches nutrition coaching mm -hmm. that took her, you know, however long to get that unaccredited certification. But by law in the state of Florida, that is not adequate to be giving health advice in exchange for money. And so the she went to trial and she lost and they tried to appeal. And the judge said, this woman is free to give advice all she wants. It is, you know, because they argued it's freedom of speech. Right. For, Just for her to give advice online. She can't charge for it. She can't charge for it. That's yeah. the difference. And, you know, that's what the judge said. You can give advice all day long, but you cannot charge for this advice. Now, that's kind of an extreme example from where I'm at, like the things I'm going to teach, right, that are more, you know, soft skills, not, not going to affect somebody's health or well-being per se. However, I, I'm on the side of the judge here. I'm on the side of the fact that we've kind of lost sight of the value of gatekeepers, and I get it. We went too far where, you know, you, you know, uh, you know, people that are significant authors couldn't get a book out because, you know, no publishers, every publisher would deny them. And then they go on to be, you know, they go on to write like Harry Potter, yeah. you know, as an example, right? J.K. Rowling as a good example, right? So we always have those outliers where it's like, but this person is a genius and they never got their chance. Now in the world of, you know, distributed content without gatekeepers, they can get their message out or their workout or whatever it is. I love that, except I think we've kind of reached this place where no one's apprenticing, no one's mentoring, no one's actually learning how to do it first before they're doing it. They just deem themselves as capable of doing it and they're doing it. So my take on that is I don't want to be one of those people. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I need to go to school for 19 years and sit in a classroom to learn how to be somebody that can write a course and put it online for you to buy.
But I also don't want to be the person that has no understanding of how that works or how it should work or why it should work. And I want to learn, I want to understand first. I want to practice first. I want to create some garbage behind the scenes first before I release it to the world. And I want to figure out how do educators really, I mean, again, it goes back to my conversation with you about project management. Where it's like, we have years and years and years and years and years and years and years of wisdom. And we're just kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and not acknowledging that we have years of wisdom that tells us how to be an educator, you know, and maybe there's ways to bridge that gap some more. So anyway, this helps me have the time to learn how to be a proper educator before I release my own courses, which is ultimately the conclusion that I came to. Um, and, and part of why I've hesitated to, you know, get this stuff out there is I know the material. I want to learn how to teach it appropriately mm-hmm. first before I do. And so, uh, you know, I think this, um, this consulting client will help me do that. It'll give me the runway I need to do that, to do my own education. Um, and then I will be, I think I will be better for it, but also I think my customers will be better for me having it done it this way instead of just releasing it. Yeah, totally. All right. So a lot of lot of things come to mind. The the first is you brought up the are we similar or different in this way? Yeah. And I'm actually, curious about that. Yeah, I think I think it's probably like seventy five percent similar, twenty five percent different. Where, okay. um, you know, it just like you said, there's a lot of behind the scenes work. I've always called this preparing for success. So a lot of people prepare for failure, right? They're like, oh, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? And and to me, a lot of times that question is asked because you haven't gone far enough down the route of doing things ahead of time to know, actually, you know what? Like, this is going to succeed because I've done A, B, C, D, E, and F, as opposed to someone who goes, I've done A, now I'm going to put this out into the world and I'm going to cross my fingers and hope that it works out, you know, but I'm prepared for it to fail and I'll, you know, whatever happens, happens. Right. As opposed to like very specific example, when I sold my Buy My Future project in 2015, which was a bundle of all of my stuff for $1,000, I had 49 Skype calls with existing customers asking them how they felt about this new project I was working on, if they would be interested in buying it, how they would talk about it. And not a single one of them did I offer to be able to purchase it ahead of time. But at the end of every call, I think about half of them said, can I buy this now? <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I, I literally, I didn't even think about that as like a you know pre-sale opportunity. And I didn't pre-sell it, but it, it came of that because I was doing all of this upfront work. I was doing all of these things. Right. Um, and, and I actually, you know, I, I think that has just been something for me that has come naturally, which is I don't want to just do something, put it out there and cross my fingers. Like that to me, it just seems like a recipe for disaster. But I am all about talking to people, trying things, doing little experiments, getting people to pay for something before it exists, getting them to go through it, see if it actually helps them. Um, and I think actually this this is very much in relation to the Make 500 project that I talked about a couple weeks ago that I haven't given a proper update on. So I'll kind of thread that in here as well, which is we only had one person out of 20 finish that project in our seven-day timeline, launch a course, and make any money. Mm. One person. Mm -hmm. We have one other person who's still emailing me like a month later, but everyone else just gave up. Mm. They just, life got in the way, the weekend came around, and it's not a lot of work that we're asking people to do. It's literally like 10 hours of work, but people just, they just don't want to do it. And, And I think so much of that is where you and I are willing to do the work. We're willing to right. do the practice. We're willing to do those things. So I think 
we're very much in alignment in that. I also think that you and I are similar in the fact that I would never try and teach something or sell something that I don't have firsthand experience in, that I haven't done myself, or that I don't feel like I've spent years perfecting. You know, so everything that I've ever sold or done is only because I've spent a lot of time working on it, experiencing it myself, you know, doing all this stuff. I am not a big fan of just like, oh, you know what would be an interesting thing to sell? A course on how to set up a hot air balloon. I've never done that, but I think I could do it. (laughs) You know, like it just, that seems ludicrous to me. Um, But the other 25% of that where I think we are different is that I think I just naturally go a bit faster than you do. Yeah, that's the difference, yeah. Which is probably mostly just impatience. Like it has nothing to do with like (laughs) anything else as much as I'm like an excited little kid. I'm just like, I want to do it, I want to do it, I want to do it. And I'll spend hours upon hours just accelerating that doing process and to sometimes that could be a detriment right like i think you like you talk about you want to master things i don't think i ever have thought about something and wanting to master it even this youtube discussion we just had i don't even care about becoming one of the best creators because i think for me that's a slippery mental slope to get down of like there's always someone better right there's always someone stronger in the gym there's always a faster nicer car there's always a bigger yacht there's you know it's like all of those things we all know and so i don't want to get stuck in those traps but i do think at some some points i am a little bit impatient uh and i just go a little bit faster than maybe i should have gone so I do think that's really interesting. Well, I think I think that's our natural predisposition. You go your predisposition to go faster and I'm predisposition to go slower. And I think most of the time it works out for both of us. Totally. But then, you know, there's that small percentage where I'm going too slow and not making enough progress. You might be going too fast, and, and not even might. I am, <laughs> no <laughs> doubt. Yeah, yeah. But that is that. Is, you're right. That is where I see differences. And you're also right. That, um, you know, something that I think I overlook about you is you're really good at doing s- tiny experiments. You know, like just kind of just enough to get a sense of where is this going? Is this useful? How might this be useful? You're really good at you know, doing those micro tests where I tend not to do that. I tend to be all in or out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a lot of value to learn that from you where there might be a, there might be a a way to get a little bit further, a little bit faster um, by doing some sort of micro experiment test, et cetera, uh, that might accelerate my growth in that process. And I think that goes largely overlooked in your work, most likely, um, by outsiders. Well, yeah, it's the classic, like, you know, the, I don't know, whoever gets accredited to, but Thomas Edison's like, I didn't fail a thousand times. I found a thousand ways it didn't work or whatever that quote is. Right. Right. And it's no one sees the thousand experiments because they're so small. They're so insignificant. They don't work. No one pays attention to them. Um, And this goes back to a previous episode where we also talked about like, no one talks about the boring middle of entrepreneurship, Mm. of running your own Mm -hmm. business. Like it's just not sexy and exciting. So it has really no, no place in the mainstream. But I actually think that that's something that people really do appreciate about what we're doing with Wandering Aimfully. And that's the whole ethos behind it, right? Like the name. Oh, yeah. That's what's great about is it. Is exactly that. It's it's wandering with a little bit of aim. Like we're not just, you know, willy nilly doing stuff, but we are trying things like that Make 500 Project is a perfect example. Yep. 
Took us a week to make it. Um, you know, we got 20 people to sign up for it. That was plenty because I was managing every single conversation myself. I didn't want more than that. And then we found out that it didn't work. And truthfully, I'm at the place now where I don't think we're going to use it. Like, I just don't. I think mm-hmm. maybe we'll mm-hmm. add it to our Wandering Aimfully membership as like if someone just wants like a really quick crash course in this and like you want to use it, that's fine. But I don't think we're going to put it out publicly because even though it was only a subset of 20 people, it was 20 people who said, I'm excited about this. I'm going to do it. And they didn't do it. They didn't have success. Right. And of course, you guys learn things. You guys will yeah. apply certain oh. things because you learned you know, different things from that experiment, et cetera, et cetera, that no one will ever know. No one will ever see yep, exactly, you know, that is contributing to your expertise, your wisdom, um, you know, and it'll show up in other places and no one will have ever known. And you could see that as a failure, right? Like I think from the outside, this is a, this is a total, this is a great example of perspective. So right. someone could see, oh, well, Jason, <laughs> make 500 thing was kind of a waste of time, wasn't it? It's like, well, no, actually it saved us a lot of time moving forward of, if we were to put this out there without testing it and no one goes through it, no one succeeds, no one buys our membership, yeah. that's actually the full waste of time. Right. This this is actually a huge positive for us because the ripple effect of time savings is really big and we can just move on to something else. Um, I do want to go back to this software thing because I, I wanted to ask one kind of sure. key and important question based on something you did that I love that not enough people do, which is when you presented kind of your um, – what's the best way to describe it? Like your case to the CEO of this company of like, here's what I think is wrong or here's where I think you can improve. I think this is such an underrated skill and it's probably something that you just, it naturally comes to you because you're you're an analytical person. You're a very smart person. I don't think enough people see this as the way that you should do any type of outreach. Like I get emails all the time from random people are like, hey, Jason, if you ever have projects that I could help out with, I'm a designer and I'd love to help you. Mm-hmm. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, cool. But now you just put all the work in my court to figure out how you fit in. As opposed to if someone literally emailed me tomorrow and went, Jason, I was looking at this thing or like I went through Teachery's onboarding and it kind of sucked and I think you could do like a lot better. And actually here's how I've wireframed it out or here's how I've designed it out. I- I'll just hand you money like that. You've solved the problem for me. I'm 100% in. Like, why would I potentially say no to that if you've done a good job? Right. And that has a huge ripple effect. So I think the way that you presented this to that software company is great. What I'm curious about is, have they said yes yet? And then if they have or haven't, what are the next steps forward with that? Yeah, they verbally said yes. So the next steps are early this next week, we'll um, actually sign an agreement. And did you have a price when you sent them like, hey, here's how I can fix everything. Here's how it would cost. Yeah. Here's how much it would cost. Yep. I told them exactly how much it would cost. And they said, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they said, well, they said, you know, let us go back to our board of directors and let us talk this over as an executive team. But, you know, then they came back and said, yeah, okay, let's do this. You're right. But, you know, and I, and I took my time, right? So, yeah. so I've used this product for more, you know, for a couple of years. So I know it inside and out. I've observed them, right? So I've observed how did they, uh, how do they teach things, how to support work for their company. So I'm very observant of how things work for them. Um, I know people on their team, right? And I know what their strengths are and their weaknesses are because I talk to them regularly as a user of the software, or I've sent in help tickets to see, you know, to get things fixed. And I pay attention to like, how long did it take them to respond? How did they respond? You know, et cetera, et cetera. So I've, 
for a couple of years now, really kind of soaked all this in, not just on a level of being a user, but on a level of how would I do this differently? How could this be better? And kind of just sat on it, right? And that's kind of just my nature. I just kind of <laughs> do that with things. Um, but I sat on it with the idea that I might approach them someday mm-hmm. and think about this. So I have a note file in my notes that I've been keeping track of, of, of different things like this, you know, this doesn't go well, this goes well, I do this differently. This is why surgeons hate their software. This is why, you know, just different things like that. Um, so when I presented it, it was thorough, you know, it was, I know exactly what your problems are. And, and basically the way I presented it is with the spin model, right? Here's the situation. Here's the problem. And, and, uh, uh, whatever the I is in spin. And then here's the need payoff. (laughs) The I is escaping me. (laughs) Um, but, but nonetheless, like kind of outlined it for him. Like, here's what I see is the situation you guys are trying to accomplish. Here's the problem. Here's why you're not able to accomplish that. Um, and here's what I can do to help you get that done. And, you know, so I knew my stuff and I outlined it very clearly for them. And then I outlined it a project, uh, outlined essentially a project from start to finish for them so that they had a clear understanding of exactly how I'm going to help. Like, like this is where we're at and this is where we're going to get to, you know, and, and they were on board. Nice. Yeah. I, I just, like I said, I think that extra investment in your outreach to them it just makes it a no-brainer because for them as a company, they go back to their board and they go, okay, this guy presented this whole thing. Like, we've known this is a problem. Uh, we could have, you know, two people on our staff look into this. Like, oh, we would have to go through and do all this stuff. Like, or we could just pay this guy. You know, he already gave us a quote of how much this would cost. That's half of what it would cost for us to have one of our employees do it. Like, yeah, this is a no-brainer, right? And and I think that that's just, that's such an important just lesson for someone to learn if they're ever doing cold outreach, which I think a lot of business owners have to do at some point in their journey. Like you just naturally have to do that. So thinking a little bit ahead, investing in that can be a really uh, important thing. So I'm excited for you. I I think that's really interesting. I, I'll be curious to see how you going through that process the next six months with them does lead into your kind of own course creation Mm -hmm. and what you learn from it. Cause I think it would be really fun to learn from, you that experience and if there's anything you see because right now i think you're going to use teachery to build your course which is the course platform i own and to know like what are the shortcomings based on what you're learning that maybe we need to address as the like backbones to that system sure Um, because we're always trying to listen to customers and feedback but when you own a software company and you get customer feedback you tend to have to have it you know with a little bit of distance right like every piece of feedback you can't take because you just can't build everything right but if you hear things multiple times you definitely want to go okay you know heard that a couple times we need to fix that so yeah and to clarify so spin selling is a concept created by neil rackham who wrote a book called spin selling and spin is situation, problem, implication, need, payoff. So it's a simple framework to frame a you know situation uh, with a prospective customer that I think is you know I always look at stuff like that. I, that, I love frameworks. You know, it's mm-hmm. just kind of how my mind works. And so if I can put it into a framework to make it easy for everyone, and we're all on the same page, that to me is a pretty good one. And it's been around for a long time. I'm really sad that that wasn't a Robert Kiyosaki framework. (laughs) (laughs) There's your uh, move the needle bingo, everybody. Got it in this episode. Uh, Okay, so I want to talk to you about this new camera that I bought, which really is a weird, I think, kind of 
thing to talk about, but it really relates to the first thing I brought up. And then I think you had you said you had one more update for your your build without burn burnout journey you're on, or was that related to the software? Uh, that was mostly related to this, which was you know as I started doing research and uncovering things, I, I really focused in on. I want to be a, I want to learn how to be a better educator before I start educating. Yeah. So, so I want, but I don't want to stop building the course. Yep. Right. So behind the scenes, I'm going to build out a few courses. I've got those outlined now. I know what I'm going to do in that front. Um, I just want to learn how to be a better educator before I, I actually create something and put it out there. I'll be really curious to see how this relates to the build without burnout that you're going through within Wandering Aimfully, this course that we built for this, because you may skip the, well, it's actually before that. So there's a part of there of like talking to your customers. And it's just what I talked about with my Buy My Future project of getting on the phone call with people, like getting on a phone call with people. I'll be really curious to see if you get this to a place in the next couple of weeks or months, whatever that looks like. And you start having conversations with people, getting people into it and how that actually works for you. Because that process can be very, very difficult for a lot of I think online business owners, because they live online, right? Like they don't live in the real world of having to talk to customers face to face or even on the phone. And I think you've lived in a separate place where you've always talked to people face to face on the phone, et cetera. So I think there's going to be some really interesting takeaways from that. And I'll be curious to see how that goes. So it's just like a little aside there. Well, and real quick on that note, so that's, that's what kind of led me to this was I have all the data I need. I know what people want. I built these, I do, I do these courses. I just do them live in more of a consulting way. Right. Exactly. Right? And, and, and not in kind of an educator walk through this process way online without me there and without all the anecdotes and everything else that I can deliver there in person where it's a back and forth over several months. Right. Um, and, and what hung me up is when I did the build without burnout course is kind of going back to the thing, like you guys are so uh, good at getting people into action. And it was like, okay, so now start emailing your list, you know? And I'm like, hold on. (laughs) I don't (laughs) like, I'm way back here. Hold on. You know? And that was kind of the thing that was hanging me up was I had to define my audience so granular and start talking to them that I was like, yeah, but I'm not sure. I'm in a place as an educator to talk to them yet. And, and in though, in those ways. So, so that's kind of what had me pause and go, well, I don't, I don't know that I'm at that place yet. Yep. And, and so build without burnout was good to get me to that spot and say, this is, this is what you have to do to build this and turn this into a money-making thing. And what it did, what it revealed to me was, is I'm not here. I'm not at this step yet. Yeah. And so I've got to get to this step. I wish more people thought like you. Because <laughs> it's not even the like, oh, I'm not here. And then most people give up is what they do. Oh, like, no, we no. Just, you just got to do the back work, you know? Yeah. But most people don't want to do that because it, it, it goes back to the lady who's selling the health coach thing, yeah. the coaching or whatever. It's like people just will sell you the the snake oil or the perfect thing or the whatever until you realize like, oh, this doesn't actually work. You know, this is just someone selling a thing that that doesn't exist. And I do think just last point on that, I would love to see a ripple effect of this come down on a lot of people who sell based on a lot of fears or who sell based on a lot of false promises because that's why we've removed pretty much any financial return out of any 
thing that we sell of like, oh, you can make five figures or six figures or whatever, because I I personally think that is that's something that needs to be regulated in some way. Like it's not I don't think it should be okay for you to promise someone you'll make six figures if you take this thing. I just don't think that's a that's a scary line to get into. And you're getting a lot of people to commit money that are can't do that. Like they just are not even set up to do that. Yeah. They're Uh, not wired in that way or don't have the education or don't have the resources or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. So what else you got? So my last thing, I want to talk to you about this camera that I bought. And uh, this kind of relates to what I brought up earlier about this comparison game, but not necessarily related. It's more just about production of content. So uh, I've been a camera junkie for years. I'm not the most technically savvy of people. Um, You know, I know enough to be dangerous and I buy equipment that's good enough to get the job done in a lot of respects. And I'm not always trying to be super cutting edge with technology. So just to preface a bunch with those things. But so we we typically want to film like one video a week for our YouTube channel that's kind of like a thought, a think piece, an idea, some different way that we're thinking or doing things or a process that we have. And then the second thing is our show. So our Wandering Influence show. So a lot like this, where it's just a conversation the two of us are having, but we are filming the whole thing because we've heard from a lot of people that they just really like the organic watching two people have discussion. Mm -hmm. Like there's just not a lot of that in the online business space. That's interesting. Like a lot of it's just kind of boring. Mm -hmm. And I think Caroline and I have such a good rapport and, you know, we know each other so well and uh, you know, it's it's fun to watch. We've heard that from people. So, so we wanted to do this, but I've just found myself really hating the process of the, the differences between those two production setups that I have to do, you know, (laughs) I just like the limitations of, and I'm not going to get too into the weeds of this, but a DSLR camera, which is like the nice camera that you use to film things. Almost all of them have a 30 minute Mm. recording time limit. This is such a weird, there's a whole rabbit hole. You could go down to learn why this exists. It's a tax thing in Europe or something, but (laughs) all cameras have this stupid recording time. limit. so our show is usually about an hour long for our wandering gameplay show. So if I was to record it with that camera, I have to the entire time be thinking, at the 30-minute mark, this camera is going to stop. I have to start the recording, and then I have to stitch that together in editing. Not mm. to mention, while I'm sitting having a conversation with Caroline that's supposed to be thoughtful, I have to not think about the time that's ticking down constantly, right? So you could see that's just a huge pain in the ass. But then it's also about, like, the camera that we bought was great for when we bought it, and it's very versatile. But it's just, it's clunky. Like, it's big. It, it, you know, it's just like, I don't know. Like, we're in 2019. Like, it shouldn't be this cumbersome. So I talked to you about this before we started recording is that myself included, and I think a lot of creators in general or business owners, we tend to get really stuck in the micro of production or of doing things or of productivity. And it's like, oh, what little tool or app? And we don't zoom the lens out enough to go, yeah, but is the macro thing that is like the key part of this actually doing this job that we want? And for us, what I realized is like, no, it's not. Like I need one better camera that can do our normal videos that we want to do, and then also record our show for more than 30 minutes. That is just a no-brainer to set up. It's super easy to turn on. And that investment is a ripple effect forward of easing the pain of me having to think about things, of having to do extra work, of all this stuff. And it's going to cost me in total $800. Like, Mm -hmm. it is such a small investment in my happiness and in my joy of doing these things. Mm -hmm. And and I just think that a a lot of us don't, 
tend to like zoom out and go, is it really this like project management tool that I'm searching for that needs to be perfect? Or am I working on a nine-year-old computer that's literally just not fast enough to do anything and I'm always trying to fix that problem when I should just buy a new computer and actually invest in that? Yeah. And so I just think that there's something to be said for, you have to obviously walk that line carefully because you don't want to just be spending money on stuff all the time. But when the right time is to invest in a higher quality thing that solves certain problems that you're having, it should almost be a no brainer. Even if it's something that might be a little bit more than you wanted to spend or something that's, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, fancier than you might need, let's say. Uh, I just think that there's, it's an important step in the process of owning your own business, creating your own things, doing your own stuff of investing in that stuff that has a return that you can't necessarily see down the road. Yeah. And I would take that one step further um, just because I have perhaps, you know, more practice in a work environment with teams is do the same thing for your team. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen so many businesses, you know, where they're trying to wring out the rag for every last bit of productivity out of somebody. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, if you just bought them a new computer, right. And they did, we didn't have to call it every day and go, my computer's acting real slow. I can't move along. You know, I've seen that so many times and then you're paying it. Then the employee is frustrated. Then the employee gives up before they've even started on things because they're like, Oh no, you know, this is going to take me forever, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, also consider that from the perspective, if you have a team, you know, how are you, how are you giving them the tools they need on a bigger picture uh, uh, situation where where they can be more productive as well? It kind of reminds me of, um, you know, like financial advice where, where, you know, you'll read financial advice like, well, if you just stopped going to Starbucks every day and you put that $3 away. It, it versus the financial advice of if you figured out how to improve your credit score and you got a credit card that had a 7% interest rate instead of a 10% interest rate, you know, like over the course of your lifetime, the th- hundreds of thousands of dollars you're saving in that three percentage difference versus the $3, you know, yeah. or like cutting coupons. You know, my parents used to do that. It used to drive me nuts where they oh, used to. Same. They both used to drive to the gas station at the same time. <laughs> Unbelievable. Dude. Yeah. And, and fill up because they could use the grocery store savings card and save the one penny yep. per gallon that they're going to save. And then you're like, well, you know, what's your interest rate on your house? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Or- how far is that gas station? Like, that's the thing that always drove me nuts about people in gas station <laughs> yeah. hunting. Like, I own an electric car now, so I don't even think about it. But it's like people who drive like two extra miles to save 12 cents on their fill up. Right. It's like you're not doing the compounding math of this. Like, right. over the and that's kind of the equivalent of the what co- you're saying where it's like, you know, totally. what's the what's the to do app yep. I need to use instead of questioning, you know, a, a bigger higher level view of this of like, maybe it's not the app. That's the problem here. Yeah. And uh, that's holding me up. And it is dangerous, right? Like you can see yourself getting into the habit of always having to have the new thing or the best thing or whatever. And so you do have to be a little bit discerning. And, And I think that this is one place where I've tried to be like, I've tried to push the existing equipment that we have. Like we filmed our Wayne show episodes on my phone because my phone is a very good camera, but even that, like, 
it just is not good enough. And there's a lot of limitations with it that were just driving me nuts. And I just was like, okay, I tried to take this as far as I could. It is now too painful. I have to solve this problem. And for $800, uh, I'll be able to solve that problem. And so that that to me, it was, wasn't being too impatient about it, you know, as I tend to be, um, but really looking at all these different things. And, and now, you know, I have this new camera now. And for those of you who are like, all right, damn it, just tell me the camera. It's the Sony a6400. If you care, if you're a camera nerd, like I am, um, I watched like 20 YouTube videos about it. Like I really just went down the rabbit hole to figure out if this was the right camera and I rented it before I bought it. So I like experienced it for three days before investing in it. And Mm -hmm. it's great. Like now I'm excited. I'm actually excited to record our things, to produce the content, to have a little bit higher quality. Um, It really has like turned, uh, you know, this kind of chapter of feeling a little bit limited by the equipment that I had into now like, oh, I'm excited now. Like I'm, I'm really like intrigued and ready to see what this can do for us. So I think those things are important. Like I don't think people give that stuff enough credit of actually solving a problem with an investment in some type of piece of equipment or whatever and the ripple effect of, of what that can lead to. Right. Um, making more stuff, being faster at making stuff, just being better and happier in the way that you work. Like those things are immeasurable and I think they're really important. Yeah, I do too. I just think you, like you were mentioning, just put it through some sort of filter yeah. that allows you to see what, you know, it doesn't have to be exact or quantitative, but just what kind of return are you really getting now versus what you could be getting? And is it smart to make a move like that? I I've, I've always found that, you know, kind of the, the penny wise dollar foolish mindset doesn't get people places that they think it's getting them as a side note. I would love to be able to hire you for all my purchases. <laughs> We've talked about, we talked about this. And the storage of my purchases. Wait, do you remember? We're ta- maintaining we talk- and the selling. <laughs> we talked about this years ago. Do you remember that uh, you had a, like, yes. a thing on Amazon where we were going to, you could put things in your cart, but I had to review them <laughs> yes. before you yes. could check exactly. out. Exactly. You're the best at this. It's amazing to me. Like I make bad purchases all the time. I feel like you've never made a bad purchase in your life. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but nonetheless, like you, you have done the research. You're, you know, I don't even know where to do the research. That's my problem. I'm always like, I don't know where to begin. I Google something. I don't find anything I'm looking for. Yeah. Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, yeah. you, uh, if there was a way that like you could, uh, uh you know, productize me, yeah, yeah. productize that yeah. man, yeah. I would be all in. Yeah. I would be all in. That's funny. But also like, but not just the buying you, you somehow maintain everything perfectly, you know? And it's like seven years later yeah. and you're like, yeah, I have the box for this. Yeah. I have the extra auxiliary cable for this. Uh, you, no, it hasn't been unwrapped. No, this one has been resealed. Like it's perfect every time, you know? Yeah. And then you sell it. I if yeah. I was thinking about this the other day because I saw you post, I saw you do some post about selling the current camera you have, yeah. which I don't, you posted it and I'm like, I don't know what that means or what that is, but <laughs> sure. But what I did know was if I needed that, you would be the person I would buy it from because I know it's going to be in tip top shape. Everything's going to be there. You know what I mean? Like I was like, yeah, I I would buy, I would buy that from Jason because I know it's perfect. It's funny. There's a a lady named Michelle who follows me on Instagram. She's actually a Wayne member as well. But anytime I've posted any Apple product for sale on Instagram, because I'll just post a quick story because it's just super easy. 
she's bought like 90% of it. And she said exactly <laughs> that. She's like, if yeah. you, she was like, just message me. If you have something, I will probably buy it. Cause I know it's going to be in perfect shape. It's going to have the yep. original box. Like it's not going to be messed with or whatever. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I just, I think growing up and not having things. And then when you could finally start to have things, you just go, Oh, I'm going to take care of this. Like this is going to yeah, be perfect yeah. the entire time I have it. And it's like you talked about at the beginning, like the things that you do take care of, like clean, keeping your car like immaculately clean or keeping your desk mm. super clean or, or what have you. Like, I think those things, they can be a little OCD, but they can also just make you care a lot more uh, about the yep. stuff that you have. So anywho, well, that's that's all I've got from my side. Do you have anything else you want to update us on? That's it from my side, man. All right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap this episode there. I know we've had some long winded ones uh, previous, so we were trying to. <laughs> keep this one a little bit shorter but i am excited for the the young blood thing that's been fun to follow along with that uh, i've told you since you invested in that coffee shop it was always an idea of mine to be a part of a coffee shop in some way so now i kind of feel like i get to be a part of it with no financial uh you know decision making <laughs> but uh it, i think our listeners too are also intrigued by hearing about all this stuff that we're working on so i think it's super fun yeah absolutely all right well we'll catch you guys in the next episode thanks for listening <laughs>